0: This is Salt and Spine.
1: You know, you can learn so much about a culture and about a people from their food. I think specifically their comfort food, you know, what do they turn to, you know, when they want comfort, you know, when they're with family, when they're, you know, sitting around a table with people they love or, you know, doing traditions they love. I think that can really teach you a sure. lot. And I think that's what gets me really excited about those recipes.
0: Hi there, I'm Brian Hogan Stewart, and you're listening to Salt and Spine, stories behind cookbooks. You just heard from today's guest, Aton Bernath. Now, Aton is one of the most visible people in food media today. At just 20 years old, he's amassed a remarkable eight- Plus million social media followers, and built a content company that is starting to rival some legacy brands. Odds are, if you have a social media account, you've seen Aton, whether on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, or even Snapchat, where he's now hosted three cooking shows. Last year, his original content reached more than 350 million people with over 3 billion views, and it all started with The Food Network. Building on his childhood love of cooking, 11-year-old Aton appeared on the first kids episode of chopped and there was no stopping him after that he started a food blog social media accounts and became a near overnight success thanks to his charismatic personality and his engaging content Case in point, Oprah magazine called him the internet's most delightful chef. Today he's president of his own culinary production studio, the principal culinary contributor for CBS's The Drew Barrymore show, and seems to be working on about three dozen interesting projects at any time, which of course means a cookbook was in the mix too. Now Eitan's first cookbook, Aton Eats the World, new comfort classics to cook right now, was published earlier this year and is full of both classic comfort foods, green shakshuka or chicken tiki masala to creative spins like a double grilled cheese with a blueberry thyme jam or his tuna melt and croque monsieur hybrid. In today's show we're talking with Aton about how his childhood love of cooking morphed quickly into a career, about creating his first cookbook, and of course we're putting him to the test in our signature culinary game. Paid subscribers will also receive access to two delicious recipes from the book. Later this week on Substack, you'll find recipes for Aton's PB&J pancakes and his cookies and cream ice cream pie. You can subscribe for just a few dollars a month to receive bonus recipes and special content like essays, Q&As with chefs and authors, and author-read excerpts from the cookbooks that we feature. So now let's head to our virtual studio where Aton Bernath joined us to talk cookbooks. Hi Aton. thank you so much for joining us on Salt and Spine.
1: Hello, I'm so excited to be here.
0: We are thrilled to have you and to chat with you about your first cookbook, Eitan Eats the World. Congratulations. Um, yes. It's beautiful. Thank you. Oh, good. We both can hold it up. Exciting.
1: Yes. Uh, <laughs> yes. And it's here in real life. Thank you so much.
0: It's here. Yes, our, our audio listeners can't see, but we're both holding up a copy. Um, and it's beautiful. And we'll we'll get to it in a second. Of course, we're here to talk about the cookbook. But we always like to start by learning a little bit more about you and what brought you to this place uh, for folks who may not be as familiar with your work. So let's let's go back to the beginning. Let's start at the beginning. You were you're born and raised in New York, right into a family where you took an interest in food at a pretty early age.
1: Yes, I'm actually, I would love to say I'm from New York, even though no hate to New Jersey. I tech, I am from New okay. Jersey. Got it. Okay. Um, now, okay. Thank you for correcting
0: me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um,
1: yeah. So I I was born and raised in Teaneck, New Jersey, um, which is actually very close to Manhattan. Um, I now live in um, New York City in Manhattan. Um, I love the city. I feel at home in the city. Um, but I, yeah, I, I mean, anyone who lives like close to New York City, we all just kind of say we live in the city or like right by the city. Yeah. And so, yeah, I grew up um, in a Jewish household and, you know, food is a very center part of life, uh, you know, as a Jew, you know, I mean, a lot of cultures like that, but especially um, in, you know, Jewish culture, you know, I think, you know, throughout my life, the biggest, you know, events and memories are all around food, whether it's, you know, sitting at the seder on Passover with my grandparents, eating my grandma's chicken sure. soup. Uh, Those type of things, you know, food is just such a central part of life. Um, And, you know, I think that that's part of what really got me into it.
0: And I know you um, ate at a number of restaurants as a kid, too. Your family would often go out to eat. And in particular, you ate at a lot of Indian restaurants and you took a real affinity to Indian food. And I, I read, too, that at one point you even campaigned to get your parents to install a tandoor oven in your home kitchen. Yes. Uh, talk about what that was like being able to experience various cuisines and things as a kid and taking an interest in, in learning more about them
1: yeah so both my parents uh work in education so you know teaching us about the world around us was something super important to them you know the things we learned in school you know wasn't enough we we, we you know my parents wanted us to learn even more about the world and sure. you know they used food as kind of a vehicle to do that and you know so we'd go to a lot of indian restaurants um on the weekends and you know when we were there my parents would try to use it as a learning opportunity you know, okay you know this is a northern indian restaurant so there's lots of bread because they grow a lot of wheat in the northwest and Southern India, there's a lot more rice, uh, and that's why you know there's more rice dishes on the menu and legumes like lentils. You know, I think that that was something that really got me, you know, really interested. And it's something that to this day, you know, I, I love to you know know more about the food than just you know what you're eating. You know, where is it from? What's the history behind it? What does this mean to other people and other cultures? Um, you know, that was definitely something that really got me interested in food. I think also, you know, where I actually grew up physically on my block um you know there happened to be that my direct neighbors who's also one of my best friends or probably my lifelong we we consider each other siblings um Uh heba um her dad's pakistani and her mom's indian um and so you know i grew up with heba and like watching her mom cook um or other neighbors um like a few doors down were also indian and pakistani like different sides of the family um and so you know i grew up around a lot of the food also And so, you know, Indian food, I always say, like, I can eat it every single day. And I honestly do eat it most days. I'm known to have like dal for breakfast or masala dosa for breakfast, or I make other Indian food or order out. I, I live very close to Little India, New York City, so I'm a frequent...
0: I know, too, that you started cooking at an early age. So you had this interest in food, but then you started to get more involved in actually cooking food yourself. Was there a moment that that sort of clicked for you? Like around what age? Was there something that prompted it? I, I think you often asked your mom to like cook things and then she encouraged you to get involved. Was it an overnight thing or was that kind of gradual?
1: Yeah, I would say it was more gradual. You know, I didn't really fit in so much like the Little Leagues or like the different things a lot of my peers were doing. Um, but I loved food. I loved watching, you know, Food Network and food documentaries. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I would ask them, like, hey, mom, can you make this thing that I saw on TV or whatever? And she's like, why don't you try making it? And, right. you know, I got in the kitchen. I really just fell in love with, you know, I think initially it was kind of like, okay, I crave this food. I realized if I cook it, I can then eat it quickly um, or at least quicker than if I didn't cook it. Uh, and I think that's kind of what started. But then, you know, I really just fell in love with, you know, the creative element of cooking, the you know, just, you know, vast amount of knowledge there is to learn with cooking. And that's, I think, what really kind of, you know, honed in on my love of cooking.
0: Yeah. And it's interesting, too, because I also know that you were also a picky eater as a kid. So, like, you took this interest, but you, uh, you know, you ate mostly carbs, it sounded like, for a period of your your childhood.
1: Yeah. So, I was a very picky eater growing up. Um, I basically just ate bread and desserts. Uh Um, You know, I didn't eat, like, chicken. I'd barely eat meat. I would definitely not eat fish, not vegetables, not uh, fruit. It's uh, so basically just white, white flour um, yeah. or all-purpose flour-based goods. Um, yeah. I definitely expanded my repertoire. Oh, and cheese. I, I like cheese, but I was okay. Um, well, only hot cheese. I don't like cold cheese.
0: Oh, still to this day.
1: Um, so that's actually something I've been working on as a human. Okay, I, f- I feel like it's a quality I lack. Um, I love high-quality Parmesan, cold. Uh um i'm working on the rest
0: okay all right
1: that that's one of the things that i call a me problem cheese cold is great aton berneth has the problem um it's kind of like bananas a food i've never gotten past i cannot stand bananas um and it's one of these things like i know i'm the problem bananas are not the problem as a human race mm-hmm. we've decided that we all like bananas and etan is just strange but i'm working yeah. <laughs> i was gonna say i'm working on it. i'm honestly not i don't plan on liking bananas anytime soon
0: okay yeah that's fair I, you're not alone there um a lot of people don't like the texture so you're you're starting to get involved in, in cooking at home experimenting in the kitchen right and then when you're 11 years old you have this opportunity to be on chopped on food network
1: Yes. Um, you know, it was really just like randomly my mom was forwarded or my dad was forwarded an email from a friend that like they saw Chop a Zoom casting call for kids. This was like before Chop Junior. It was like a random kids episode. Um, okay. And honestly, my, my mom just thought it was a good activity for me to do like after school. So I just filled out this like 30 question thing about cooking. I loved cooking. So I was like, oh, sure, I'll write about like all this. And after that, there were phone interviews, like video interviews, an in person interview. Um, and lo and behold, I got on the show.
0: And at that point where, I mean, you're 11 at the time. So, you know, you're not even like close to graduating high school or anything at that point, but were you starting to think like, when did it start to feel like this could be a profession to you? Did, was that that moment or did that come later with, you know, social media and things?
1: Um, yeah, I mean, I definitely had one, like I was, I, when I, before it, I was definitely like, oh, I want to be a chef. You know, I think what Chopped did was, you know, after I appeared on Chopped, um, I, you know, started doing like cooking demonstrations across the Tri-State area. I started writing a food blog. Um, I think at that uh-huh. point, I very much saw it as a career. And I think kind of what it changed for me is I realized, like, not only do I love cooking, but I love entertaining and educating. And I think what that really kind of taught me that myself, so I was like, oh, I really want to pursue, like, food media. Uh, and that's, you know, a career that now is, like, very big. But, like, when I was doing that 10 years ago, it was not this as widely known career path. But I realized, so you know, I love teaching about food, talking about food, you know, educating. And, you know, I started my food blog, and I was releasing a recipe every single week and you know saying that i always say is you know obviously you know i'm incredibly fortunate and grateful and you know i've gotten experiences that i'm super you know i don't love to use the word lucky because I, I really you know i i work very hard uh, but yeah. you know obviously there's luck and everything um and chance and privilege and everything that comes with that um but you know since i started my blog when i was um well, i was 12 years old when i started it which is eight years ago um i treated it like a business you know Obviously, I was in school. I was in elementary school at the time or middle school, um, but you know every single Sunday I post a rest of my blog. and you know that meant that you know if I didn't have a recipe up and it was Sunday, I would not hang out with friends. I would be working on a recipe, photographing it, writing about it. Um, and I actually my third or fourth ever blog post was sponsored by a company. Um, I got paid like a hundred dollars um, uh-huh. and I like wrote a recipe with this company. Um, and so I've always really treated it like a business.
0: And then at some point you start to dabble more and more in social media, right? And eventually um, you make, I think you made your first, your first TikTok went viral, right? Am I getting that right?
1: Yes. Yes.
0: Like you, you told a teacher, right? Like I can make this go viral and, and you did within 24 hours. Could you, could yeah. you talk about how, what that entry into TikTok and this and social media was like? Um, Cause I think that's, you know, a, a really big part of your brand now, obviously.
1: Yeah, so after Chopped, I started my food blog. I had like an Instagram page. And, you know, from there, I just kept growing and growing, doing more types of content, some video content. I was doing YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, everything. Um, Then this app, TikTok, came along. And I was a big consumer of TikTok, but I hadn't posted on it yet. And we were like talking about it in class. And I made a bet with my teacher in my class. I was like, I bet by the end of the school year, I can get a video to hit a million views on TikTok. Um, and basically, the way the bet worked was if I won, then the class would have to pay for... Or the teacher, presumably, would have to pay for a fancy dinner for me to go out by myself. Well, maybe not by myself, but you know what I mean? For me. Sure. Um, yeah. And if I lost the bet at the end of the school year, I would cook the whole class dinner one night. So long story short, I'm like a very like calculated person. Um, like you know, like I said, I've always kind of thought of that as a business. So I'd already at that point started like a Google Doc where I wrote down like TikTok ideas I thought that can go viral. And one of them was a video about my school's cafeteria because my school had like this insanely nice cafeteria, kind of like a restaurant. Uh, uh-huh. And I made this video. There's a trend at the time called "My Best Friend's Rich Check," um, uh-huh. which is basically this audio where you like someone for my best friend's rich check. They like show their friend's house or something. And so then I made my own version. Where I said, "World's Best School Cafeteria Check." And then I showed videos in my school's cafeteria, and I won the bet four hours after that class um, concluded because I ran to the cafeteria, made the video, and within about three hours, it hit a million views.
0: Wow. And you were new to the platform, right?
1: Oh, and I hit a million followers within, like, I think a month or two. So I... Uh, wow.
0: the- <laughs> doubly. <laughs> <laughs> Although yeah.
1: I never got the dinner. I never got the dinner. Oh, say that. Okay.
0: You're owed it. You're still owed it. Yeah. Um. As you started to, you write, write about this a little bit in the introduction to your cookbook. But as you started to get into producing more social media content and things, did you? How did you sort of grapple with, um, that feeling of like the the insecurity a little bit? I think obviously now you you do it so much, it's probably faded to some extent. But you you write like, you know, what were what would my peers think? Did I look stupid on camera? Or pe- what were people going to think of me? Would anyone even watch this? And then that you kind of just didn't let your insecurities get in the way and that that's a lesson that has stuck with you since. But how as a person who's so present on social media, and you're, you're out there every day, how have you sort of dealt with that um, over the course of your career now?
1: Yeah, so you know, when I started creating content online in middle school, um, or even just mm-hmm. being on in the public eye in middle school, you know, when I was on Chopped, Um, you know, it opens anytime we do something in the public eye, it opens yourself up to a lot of criticism. And you know, middle school is like the height of peer criticism. Uh and so, you know, there were a lot of kids who had a lot of not nice things to say about it. I mean, I did lose in the first round. Um, you know, so that opens up a lot of room for uh making fun of. And, you know, I think it very quickly taught me um, a very strong sense of confidence. You know, I would definitely say like a strength of mine. I think is my confidence in myself. And you know, I think throughout high school and you know, especially the end of middle school after chopped, like I would describe myself as a very confident person. Um, you know, like I'm Anton. This is me. If you have a problem with it, like f off. Like I don't like nicely, mm-hmm. nicely yeah, f sure. off. Like yeah. like yes. I don't have any wrong. I don't hate you. I'm not mad at you. Just like I'm doing me. If me doesn't work for you, leave. Like like you don't need yeah. to be you know, involved with me. Um, and so I think that gave me a really strong sense of confidence. I think, you know, just as my career is growing, that's kind of built, you know, uh, last year in 2021, um, I, my videos reached 300 million individual people, um, across all of social media on TikTok, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Snapchat, all combined 300 million yeah. individuals with, um, wow. uh, over a billion, I think it was maybe a billion or 2 billion views, um, like of within those people, a lot of people obviously watch more than one video. Um, and so, you know, that's, that's a lot of people that is, um, like, I think it's like one out of every 30 people or 20 people on planet earth. Um, and that's a lot of people. So, you know, I think at this point, there are so many people that watch my videos and it's like, you know, you can never make everyone happy. It's something that I really always try to do, you know, whenever I do public speaking or anything, or people like ask me like a lesson I've learned is, you know, obviously I have this on an amplified level. You know, I, my actions are seen by hundreds of millions of people. But sure. I think even in your own life, something that I always really try to, you know, I think the biggest lesson I've learned is nothing you could ever do will make everyone happy. So don't try. As long as like yeah. you know that what you're doing, you know, makes you proud and you know it's aligned with your values, um, that's what matters. Because you know, you know, this world is so divided, and like you can do one thing, and half the people will love what you just did, and you could do the complete opposite thing, and then the other half will. Hate what you just did, and I think that's something wow. I learned kind of quickly, you know, throughout my teens. I was like, Oh, okay, like I, nothing I do will make everyone happy, and I think that that's thing that really taught me confidence. So, you know, this is what I'm doing. You know, or someone going to comment on my fast forward? You look ugly, you look weird, why are you wearing that? Or in my video, why are you talking like that? What are you doing? Blah blah blah. Yeah, they're going to say that, but that's a them problem, not a me problem. <laughs>
0: Uh-huh. Yeah, no, it's it's a it's a great lesson. Um, and you know, really great for you that you learned it at, at such a young age and have been able to integrate that into your career now. Um, how do you as as a person who reaches one of 30 people-ish across the globe and is so integrated into social media and, and I'm curious too about TikTok in particular, how do you think that's changing the food media landscape now that it it has become so prevalent?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, COVID-19, you know, really kind of gave a boost to the food media industry. Uh, You know, when everyone was, you know, stuck at home, locked down, restaurants were closed, um, you know, food media saw a humongous, like, exponential uh, spike in growth, you know, even just for myself, I like, you know, I, you know, unfortunately, you know, obviously covid was you know I always say like COVID was the worst thing that's ever happened in my life. You know I, I lost my grandfather to COVID, um, yeah. but, but it was also ironically one of the best things that happened. And obviously I don't say that lightly. I know what it's like losing COVID, but it was this. So it's, it's been this very weird, um, you know, dichotomy that I had to deal with. You know, especially in 2020 and 2020 or 2021 and 2020. Sure. And tw- all these past few years since losing my grandfather has been you know everything I have right now in my life. Is just unequivocally because of the pandemic. You know, if there was not the pandemic, my social would not have grown as it did. I would not have reached that many people. There wouldn't be as many people interested in food. But at the same time, you know, I lost my grandfather and millions of other people around the world. Um, and it's been this weird thing for me to kind of you know deal with and you know internalize. Um, but you know, I do credit a lot of my success to the fact that you know all of a sudden there were all these people interested um, in food. Uh, and I think that, you know, it's really changed the landscape because so many more people are interested, you know, and I think what TikTok did and you're really all the socials did. That's really great is the relatability. You know, I think one of the feedback mm-hmm. is the feedback I hear the most often from fans, uh, you know, especially adults. You know, a lot of people think that like most of my aunts are kids, but they're actually like adults, you know, 20 to 40. Um, it's like right. my, my main audience, um, is like, oh, if Aton could do it, then I can. And, you know, not to hate on any of the, you know professionally trained chefs on television love them big fans of a lot of them um but you yeah. know there is some of that relatability that you can lose you know if it's a chef who's worked in restaurants for 10 years went to culinary school won all these awards you know if someone sees them making it it's a little bit less relatable whereas you know if it's like Aton in his kitchen wearing a t-shirt and sweatpants show you how to do it there's that more relatability there and it's not just me it's with a ton of other creators i think that that's kind of a thing that you know i think it's got a lot of people more into cooking and expand the repertoire is you know the people they see doing it are more relatable. And I think on top of that, something that I think it's, it's done that's been incredible is it has opened up a much wider, more diverse set of voices, which I think is something uh-huh. that's super important. Um, you know, I'm obviously just like a small example, but, you know, if you go 10 years ago, there were not, well, I'm not a teenager anymore. I'm 20 now, but I've been a teenager for the past bunch of years. Um, yeah, there were right. not teenagers <laughs> prevalent, big in the food media. Um, but even, sure. you know, more importantly than that, you know, creators of color and, you know, Black chefs and Indian chefs and different Asian chefs and, you know, all these different chefs who, you know, just were not prevalent in food, at least American food media, um, you know, in more traditional outlets like television and all those other forms of more traditional media um, now do have voices. And, you know, if you look on social media, some of the biggest chefs, you know, Korean Vegans, one of my favorite um, yeah, she's you know, creators, she's amazing and she's super big or, you know, one of my other favorite creators is the Black Forager. Um, uh-huh. If anyone's not following her, uh, I am such She's a big awesome. fan. Yeah. she yeah. makes the most uh, unique food content. she forages for the food and then teaches you about that. It's mind blowing. Um, and those are just two little examples. But like, I think what it's done that's been so amazing uh, is it has made the landscape so much. And obviously, there's still problems within it, but so much more equitable. And, you know, obviously, that's great for the creators, you know, these creators are able to make a living in an industry that was very kind of whitewashed and, you know, hard, mm-hmm. kind of very lot of red tape. Uh, but even just for the consumer, you know, I think one of the things I was trying to say is the amazing part of, you know, having a more diverse set of creators is you get a more diverse set of knowledge you can learn from them. Um, and so it's such a win-win situation, I think it's been incredible in food media.
0: Totally. Obviously, you you have a lot of things working in your favor when it comes to being a social media star. You have a team now uh, that supports you. You're young, so you're really native to these platforms compared to some people who are of a, of older generations who are trying to join the platforms. But we've talked to some chefs, authors, you know, who are just like it's it's exhausting. Um, it burns you out, like to try and produce TikToks regularly, to try and churn content out. Is that something that you have felt or have you sort of been I know you don't love the word lucky but sort of lucky in the sense of like you've been able to build a team around you now and like you have you have support how does it feel for you as a social media creator um do you get that burnout feeling
1: so yeah it's definitely real I mean I I post a lot um yeah you do across every single platform um I post every week 21 videos on Facebook I post six episodes on Snapchat I post one YouTube video. I post about seven or something. Like 14 TikToks. Um, some of this is syndicated, but a lot of it's original. Yeah, but it's all um, original. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I post daily on Instagram. Um, I post at least once or twice a day on Pinterest. Um, I post not really on Twitter. Yeah, I guess that's kind of everything. Uh, but it's a lot. Um, yeah. And, you know, from a work standpoint, um, I film videos every single day from nine to, well, well, filming I film from nine to six PM, five days a week, yeah. all day long. Um, and outside of that, I work tons of hours outside of that on um, like the li- other things. Um, sure. And you know, I'm really grateful I have a team. You know could not be all done just by myself i mean for many years i did but not the scale um yeah. you know i have an amazing culinary producer you know head of operations video editor social media manager i also have my whole representation team that handles brand deals and all those things um but you know the burnout's real i, I it's saying that you know i i used to work literally 24 7 i had no social life i every single morning woke up at, i still wake up at six to start work but i woke up at six worked till nine before everyone got into the office i still do that but the good part's after, let me get to that. Um, okay. Then I'd work a <laughs> right. full day with everyone in the office. And then from 6 to 11pm, I would continue working after everyone left. Um, I now have more balance in my life, um, you know, to avoid burnout. I Almost every night now, I take most of the night off. I mean, I'm still, so i I love to do email, forget about all those things. But I usually do fun things at night. I start taking off the weekends. Um, but you know, burnout's real. I think, you know, what's important yeah. is, you know, take those breaks, you know, sense it before it happens. Um, and, you know, I really try to make sure that, you know, I'm selling fun while I do it. You know, obviously there's some videos I, you know, just, you do to pay the bills, you know, um, certain platforms that are, you know, more monetized, um, you know, it's like, all right, this is more of a monetization platform. This is, you know, to help fund the business and other things, you know, more like fun, if you want to say, um, but I think the most important thing is to just, you know, make it fun. And, you know, when you sense that, you know, take that break, you know? it's a very unique job in a sense, you know, I don't have a boss, you know, I, I always joke that the algorithms are like, my boss that I have to bow down <laughs> to. Um, but right? the reality is, I can take a break when I need to um, could be very hard to but I, I think that the key is, you know, for me, you know, me and my team, you know, my goal is not to like go viral right now and then like crash and burn. Uh, you know, my goal is to do this right. for the next 40-50 years of my life. And I, you know, I, I, I want to make sure, you know, okay, maybe, yeah, if I go insane right now, I could like gain a bunch of followers very quickly, but that's not my goal. You know, my goal is to be here for a very long time, you know, evolve as a person, as a creator. And, you know, I think something that's exciting to me is, you know, like I can evolve in front of everyone. Um, you know, the eight ton I am sure. right now is going to be nothing like the eight ton I am in 10 years from now. And I think that that really excites me.
0: Yeah, that's great. Let's talk about the cookbook a bit. So you write that you dreamed about writing a cookbook your whole life. And you just, you know, you didn't know when, when this was going to happen. But can you talk about how that opportunity came about? And uh, what that felt like to know that you were going to be able to write your first cookbook at, you know, publish it when you were 20?
1: Yes. Um, so I wrote 18th World old, actually, when I was 19. For those who don't know, but I'm sure you not listen to this podcast. Um, cookbooks <laughs> take a while to write. Uh, so I yep. started writing when I was 18. That's when I signed the book deal. Um, and so yeah, I had I've been always been a big cookbook collector, like my whole like I had this big desk um, growing up, but like the whole top shelf was full of cookbooks and I love cookbooks. I have been writing a food blog since I was twelve and basically whenever I developed a recipe that was like, okay, this is too good to give out for free on the internet. I would save it and uh-huh. put it in my cookbook folder in my Google Drive. And I was like, you know what, like one day I'll write a cookbook. I really do believe it. Like who knows when it will be, but I want this recipe for that when that day comes. And sure. then when I was 18, um, so, you know, I signed, uh, with William Morris, um, Endeavor, WME, uh, three, four years ago, I want to say. And, you know, when it came to the time, you know, that strategically that it makes sense to start writing a cookbook, I, you know, put together a pitch with my book agent and, you know, we pitched out the book to publishers. And, you know, at that time, you know, when you do that process, you know, I was, I was hoping to maybe have one interested. Um, you know, I've really talked about that much, but, um, the process went very well. Um, you know, I, yeah. I had quite a few offers at the end, um, to, you know, eventually sift through and, you know, figure out what made the most sense, um, strategically. And, you know, then I ended up going with, um, you know, Clarkson Potter, which was such an honor, you know, I think once I got the offer from them, it was, it made the decision very easy. Uh, you know, they're just such, such like, you know, an incredible like establishment and I feel like there's so much respect that comes with their name and you know it was just really really incredible I remember you know there was a FaceTime call um the day that like the offers came in and the day that like I was making the decision with like my team uh-huh. and I was literally like sobbing freaking out uh, cuz you know like you know going into it I I didn't even know like if I get an offer you know when you go when you, like, you have, I don't know I'm just like an 18 sure. year old uh and it was like one of the most exciting days ever and i just remember being like 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 talking to my mom and dad and being like oh my like you know i was 13 time my parents wanted to, want to write a cookbook or 12 or time when i was 11 and like it, it was happening so it was yeah one of the most exciting days i, I remember and I, I occasionally like go back through my emails look at that day just like look at the emails <laughs> of all of us freaking out
0: yeah. Yeah. You got to save all those. Did you have this concept in mind when you wrote that first pitch then this idea of, so it, the, the title is obviously "Aton eats the world. And the, the, the theme is essentially sort of comfort foods with international influences and drawing from international comfort foods. Was that the original pitch or how did, did that sort of evolve?
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, I always describe like my personal taste in food and kind of POV as, you know, comfort food from around the world. I, you know yeah. you know i really try to be very intentional and very you know thoughtful in the type of content i do because you know, i think that i always try to approach you know when i'm doing food that's you know not like native to you know where i'm from or my own culture um is you know my point of view is always you know i am a very excited learner and I like to use uh-huh. my platform to kind of be like, hey, I learned this. This is what I learned. Like, I'm excited to show you what I learned. Um, and, you know, making sure to give credit where credit's due. Uh, and, you know, that's something like, that's very important to me. So that's kind of the point you always try to bring. It's you know, like, you know, I love Indian food. I'm not an expert on Indian food. There's a 100 million chefs who are Indian who are experts on in Indian food that you should listen to. But sure. here's a few recipes that I've learned. Here's the story behind how I learned it from Indian chefs or things like that. Uh, and I'm excited to share with you what I've learned and you know, give you that background. I think that, that's kind of the point of view I really like to have. You know, I'm not an expert in Indian food. I love Indian food. Do I think I know a lot about Indian food? Yes, but there's a lot more Indian chefs out there who are on social media. Um, you know, Rachel Gurjar is uh, one that I love, uh, and I'm good friends with her also. Um, she works yeah. at Bonap now. Um, she's an incredible Indian chef. She's someone you should listen to more than me, uh, but that's kind of the angle that I always try to go with, and so I think that was that was really from the start and you know i think what's most important to me with this book is you know and i kind of write about some books you know i think one of the things that unites us all is food and specifically comfort food and i think that you know you can learn so much about a culture and about a people from their food i think specifically their comfort food you know what do they turn to you know when they want comfort you know when they're with family when they're you know sitting around a table with people they love or you know th- doing traditions they love i think that can really teach you sure. a lot and i think that's what gets me really excited about those recipes specifically
0: I get the sense that um, from a recipe development perspective, you also like to play with unexpected ingredients or interesting mashups, right? Like there's a recipe for a tuna melt that's also kind of a take on a croque monsieur. There's a puppy chow recipe that in, incorporates tahini, right? Which I think puppy chow or muddy buddies, some people refer to it. There's a, um, a pasta recipe that sort of brings together... A, Traditional tapenade with pesto hybrid. So, I talk a little bit about your recipe development process and how you sort of think about. I'm curious to tap into your brain. How do you think about bringing all those things together like that?
1: Yeah. So, one of my favorite things to do with food is like taking two dishes that are great and like combining them. Um, uh-huh. I can't say what it is because I'm writing. Um, I'm writing it for cool publication be out soon, but I'll be on the lookout. I okay. recently developed one that was taking two of my favorite Italian dishes and combining them. Um, okay. and I think what's super fun about doing that. And I think one of the reasons also like people really love it is, you know, you, you already love both of them and the thought of them being together is just very warm and fuzzy and good. Uh, and I think that for me, it really excites me because, you know, when you think about it, so each recipe has a method and, in, and ingredients and sure. figuring out where the cross section of each each's ingredients and methods when combining them is a really fun process and you know it's like well you know specifically with the pesto um that's kind of like olive tapenade like okay yeah. i want to use the flavors from the olive tapenade in the you know the function form factor of a pesto or with the croque monsieur uh-huh. tuna melt it's okay i love tuna melts and i was like well i'm not just going to publish a tuna melt recipe and it's like okay so i'm going to take a tuna melt but i'm going to give it like the croque monsieur form factor and treatment. And so i think what's really fun is you know i was like okay then recipe wise you know the croque monsieur is french so i'm going to take some french flavors like the cornichons in there the shallots the dijon uh i'm going to take those french flavors you know put it in with that tuna melt and then put it in the croque monsieur form factor with that cheesy mornay on top. And so i think it's just this really fun kind of project of like okay where what's that cross section between the two ingredients and methods.
0: Yeah. I love that explanation. That's that's really interesting and, and helpful to, to hear how you think that way. It's a interesting um, approach. And I wonder if like, do you push the limits too much sometimes? Like, I'm sure you have <laughs> things that just don't work. And I also, it sounds like it worked, but I just saw this video recently of you and a friend making, um, I think it was uh, penne a la vodka pizza. And it was just like... M- piled high um which i'm like is that pushing the limits like it, it looked delicious but are you know when you start to play like that and think about ingredients and and putting them into different applications like i, I imagine that often it doesn't work or occasionally it doesn't work
1: yeah i mean i would say honestly i would say 90 percent of the time it does because i put okay. a lot of i don't just kind of do willy-nilly like i do like sure. research before um yeah. definitely depending on like, pizza is one that is delicious but a best to eat um just because <laughs> yeah. like, if you think about it like the no matter how good your crust is it cannot support the weight of like four inches of right. vodka over it right. um, yeah i would say that's not the most practical mashup i've done it's definitely one of the most delicious though i'll tell you that
0: okay yeah well it's a trade-off then because it, yeah. it looked pretty delicious um Obviously, we're a show on cookbooks. So I always like to ask folks about cookbooks. And you mentioned, you know, growing up, you had, you started to collect some cookbooks. You had a, a wall of cookbooks or a shelf of cookbooks um, as a child. Are there particular authors or cookbooks that have been really important to you as you've um, progressed in your career now?
1: Yes. Yeah, so well, my favorite books is Sababa by Dina Sussman. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. I also love, um, oh my God, well, I cannot believe I got the name. Uh wait, no, there's no way. I, this is like one of my favorite cookbooks. Oh my God. Wait, no, no, no. We'll you it's by Michael Solomonov. What's so, uh, Zah- Zahav? Zahav. Zahav, Zahav? Zahav, Zahav. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Love Zahav. Oh my God. Love yeah. that book. Um, really love that book. Um, God, i found a lot of books recently i feel like that's why my i got like a shipment recently a lot of books from my publisher um yeah. i don't know those are two i remember like growing up that i well adina's book came only out a few years ago so i was a teenager right. when it came out but uh zahav growing up loved that book i think specifically those two books that i love is the storytelling mm-hmm. i really feel like i'm in the kitchen with them when i read their recipes and head notes i think that's something i really tried to do with mine
0: yeah, I appreciate, too, that you plugged two books that have been featured on the show. So people oh. can go back and listen to our, our chats with Adina and with um, Michael. Um, that was, that was on
1: purpose. You, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> yes. Yeah,
0: I appreciate it. Well, uh, as a first-time cookbook author, I'm curious, too, what do you think, and an avid consumer, what do you think makes a great cookbook? What qualities do you look for?
1: Really good photography. Uh, mm. I think that's very important, you know, especially now with, like, social media. Like, we eat with our eyes first. And yeah. we, we always have, but I think now more than ever. So I think really good photography, you know, uh, a photo for every dish, if your bu- book has a budget for, I think is very important. Uh, I think that, you know, making sure that the recipes, you know, in the, in the book as a whole have things that both will feel familiar yet different. Uh, you know, if you hand someone a book, it's like, whoa, I've never seen any of these recipes. That could be a bit jarring. I think that kind of thing. I think that's like I tried doing the book. You know, I have some classics like Penny Allbot in the book, you know, Right. Is Penny Albaka something brand new? No, but I think I have some cool tricks and ways to make it even better. Uh, but then again, I have some dish in there that most people probably will have never have heard of. Uh, and I think that balance is important. I also think that, you know, storytelling is really important, you know, in the head notes and the parts in the beginning is, you know, getting that person excited, you know, getting them in your kitchen, you know, kind of grabbing them through the page into your kitchen in a non-creepy way. Uh, sure. I think that's I think that's important. I think that really making the people who are reading it feel like i got this is important you know obviously you want to push people out of your comfort zones and you know there's recipes in the book that are meant to be hard and meant to be like okay this is like a project recipe but i think striking yeah. that balance between you know familiar and approachable with also pushing out of your comfort zone is a uh, not an easy balance to strike but i think it's an important one
0: yeah that's a great answer well we always end with a little game so i thought we would um play a comfort food game so since Amazing. your book is about you know comfort foods um i'm gonna give you some cards so we have four decks here we have um a vegetable deck we have a protein deck self-explanatory we have a flavor deck which is spices herbs etc and then we have a deck of secret ingredient cards so i'll draw one from each deck um and that'll be sort of your bat you know sort of like chopped right it'll be your basket yes. that you have to work with you can assume you have a, a stocked Pantry larder uh, at the ready, and tell us how you might comfort food that combination. How does that sound?
1: That sounds amazing. I have the memory of an eight year old man, so I will be getting out my notes up to write down the ones <laughs> you, you choose. Got it.
0: Yep, and I can I can hold them up for you too. Yeah, I'm, take, um, I'm taking right, notes. So, okay, I shuffled these. Let's do protein first. Okay, the protein we have is duck. Duck. Okay. Vegetable we're working with today is potato, and it's open ended. So I think you can. Personally, my favorite vegetable. Oh, okay. There you go. Wonderful. Uh, Let's draw a flavor. We have bay leaves. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And now our secret ingredient. Okay. Our secret ingredient is dragon fruit.
1: Oh, actually, I just used that this week. I'm very happy I wrote these down because. I would have forgot yes. all of those at this point. Okay, so we have duck, <laughs> duck potato, dragon baby, fruit, yeah, and go dragon for it. fruit. Is this all supposed uh-huh. to be one dish or like part yeah, one dish.
0: It's up to you. If you want to do one dish or if you wanna, you know, course it out a bit and make a dish on the side um or you know, a dessert. Um up to you. But okay. we're looking for a comfort food. So like how do we how do we get a comfort food with this combo?
1: Okay, the first place my my head goes to, and I'll explain why. And I know this isn't like what Americans think of comfort food, but it is what people in other countries do. I think of tacos as a comfort food because they're like messy, which yeah. to me, being messy is comforting. Um, so, and actually, I do I do have to give a caveat. I've only actually ever cooked duck once. Okay. It's not a pro- It's not a protein I cook too often. Um, but I think I would probably like roast the duck with some type of rub that also has bay leaves in it somewhere there okay well i don't know if the rub would have bay leaves that doesn't make logistical sense whatever there'd be bay leaves involved in the process and then also i would take the potato and uh make kind of like little cubed up little hash brownie situation and then i would do kind of like imagine like i like almost like carnita the duck in the sense where it's like you know i roast it down shred it a bit get it to like little crispy bits you know season obviously with all the correct seasoning then I have a little bits of potato for some starch in the taco. Then uh-huh. I would make, I love having fruit and salsas. And I'd make a salsa with the dragon fruit on top for a nice little pretty uh, bit of color. And I feel like that would be really good because you have like kind of a spice from the spices I'll put on the duck. The potato gives you that nice starchiness. Um, the bay leaves obviously will add flavor to the duck. And then the dragon yeah. fruit... Salsa on top would give you that bits of like sweetness, maybe a little more spice of this jalapeno in there, but I think that sweetness to contrast the spiciness in the duck would be delicious.
0: Right. And fruit and duck. Great combination too.
1: There you go. That, that would be I my comfort food of choice.
0: All right. Can we do one more round? Yes. Let's close it out. Okay. Let's pick a protein. We are working with, okay. Our protein is nuts.
1: Oh, do we, any type?
0: Any type open-ended. Amazing. Uh, the flavor we're working with is cumin.
1: One of my favorites.
0: Looks like whole cumin seeds, but, you know, either way. Uh, vegetable we're working with is green beans.
1: Oh, okay.
0: And let's check out our secret. Oops, let's check out our secret ingredients. All right. Our secret ingredient is Octopus.
1: Oh god, I've never. I I don't I don't eat shellfish. I don't eat sea, like, uh, seafood. Like you want me to pick one more? Yeah, let's. I don't want to make you. Yeah, do, yeah, I yeah. don't want
0: to make you do. A, yeah, that you don't eat. Okay, let's pick a new one. Um, okay, the secret ingredient is dashi.
1: Dashi. Okay, I have used that before.
0: So we have dashi, which uh, you know, uh, umami stock, um, nuts, cumin, and I dropped the other one.
1: Oh, uh, green. I took notes. Don't worry. Nuts, and green beans. Cumin, that's what it was. Yeah, and dashi. <laughs> That's a, that's, a, that's a lot. Um, that's
0: a more challenging one. Yeah. All right.
1: Not going to lie, I haven't used dashi enough to know all the ways you can use it. Like, I know in stocks, but, like, can you, like...
0: I can give you the context on the card. It says yes. a cooking stock high in umami, used as a soup base or mixed into the batter of some grilled foods.
1: Wow. Okay, I'm so stupid. I was thinking of something else for dashi. I have used enough. Okay, okay, I know what you're talking about. Um. I mean, I think then I would just do, like, a really like good like what i actually been growing they're not green beans there's some something very similar to green beans i'm growing in my garden um okay. and i love to just like saute them with a super flavorful sauce i kind of like deglaze the pan with a really flavorful sauce so i feel like i would like you know kind of pan sear the the green beans i would you know obviously season with some whole i love whole cumin seeds they just i think it's just so yeah. like little crack in the, the teeth it's very good um uh-huh. and then i would probably take the dashi as like the base of the sauce and then i think some like chopped toasted nuts on top would add like a nice little crunch um, i don't know how comfort foody that is but i feel like unless you slap a bunch of like cheese and make like a green bean casserole how comfort <laughs> right. foody can can it be
0: right yeah that that's a fair point i think the dashi feels pretty comforting though it's like yeah. that umaminess it's it's nice and warming so i think it'd be a nice dish a nice healthy comfort food to tuck into yeah
1: yeah, yeah nutrient-packed.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you so much for playing the game, and thank you so much for joining us on Salt and Spine, Eitan. This was so much fun.
1: Thank you so, so much for having me. I'm going to Google where I can get those cards from, because I need them.
0: <laughs> I'll send you a link. Yeah, they're pretty Amazing. Fun. Thank you. And that's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can find bonus content from today's show and all of our episodes on our Substack, which you can find at saltandspine.substack.com. There you'll find two featured recipes from Aton Eats the World, the PB&J pancakes, and the cookies and cream ice cream pie. For just a few dollars a month, you'll get tons of exclusive and bonus content from recipes, cookbook excerpts, essays, and much more. Remember, if you like hearing from your favorite authors on Salt and Spine, and I hope you do, please click subscribe wherever you're listening. We also love to see your ratings on iTunes. Our show today was produced by me, Brian Hogan-Stewart, and our producer, Clea Worster. Our kitchen correspondent is Sarah Varney. The Salted Spine original theme song was created by Brunch for Lunch. Salted Spine is typically recorded at the Civic Kitchen in San Francisco's Mission District. The Civic Kitchen is now offering both digital and in-person classes for home cooks. You can find more at civickitchensf.com. Thanks, as always, to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonimo, and the Civic Kitchen team, to Edible San Francisco, to Celia San at Omnivore Books and to Monique Lamas at Hardcover Cook. We'll be back next week with more stories behind the cookbooks you love.